So I have a lot to share with you today. You guys game? Now, to get to where I want to end by way of an understanding, we have to start with a bigger, broader concept. So let, let's begin there. I want you to imagine that you go out and you buy the state-of-the-art, best-of-the-best, all the bells and whistles, the latest and the greatest, side-by-side refrigerator. And so you choose a Viking product, 72-inch built-in side-by-side refrigerator. It's going to set your back $25,000, true story. So you arrange for delivery. You wait your four-hour window. The delivery crew shows up and they ask you, where would you like the refrigerator? And you say, I I want it out on the back patio. And they look at you kind of sideways because they've never installed one in an outdoor kitchen. So they're thinking, this must be a pretty impressive layout. They work their way around the corner of the house and it's just a stone patio. And up against the wall is your three-legged black egg-shaped Weber grill. That's it. And they say, where would you like it? Oh, just put it right there and and plug it in for me, please. Now, the delivery man, he's, he's learned through the years that you don't ask questions. You just drop off the product. You sign the paperwork and you go on about your business. It's none of your business. But you're so excited the best side-by-side refrigerator you can find. And then immediately you call your favorite handyman. You say, Daryl, Daryl, I got a project for you. I need a couple of doggy doors installed. Daryl's like, doggy doors, I can do those in my sleep. I'll be there tomorrow. Remember, it's an absurd illustration that he'd be there the next day. <laughs> so Daryl shows up and he says, uh, where do you want these doggy doors? You take him out back to the patio and you stand in front of that big Viking side by side. You say, I need one in the front door of this refrigerator. And then there's a couple of compartments inside the refrigerator. Could you, could you connect them with a doggy door? Daryl's like, we've done a lot of projects together. I've practically remodeled this house, but I, I, you want me to do this to this? This expensive Viking refrigerator? Yep, I know what I'm doing, Daryl. Daryl's also learned that if he wants to get paid, you just make the customer happy. So he pulls out his sawzall and his drill, and he starts to work through that beautiful stainless steel door. A couple hours later, he comes around. He says, okay, all done. Three doggy doors installed in your Viking refrigerator. And you go, oh, this is perfect. This is great. And Daryl, he's known you long enough that he feels free to, you know, ask a question. And he says, can I ask you a question? You say, sure. And Daryl says, do you even have dogs? And you go, oh, no, Daryl, this isn't for my dogs. This weekend, we are so excited. We are taking possession of a family of penguins. We can't believe it. A mom, a dad, and two littles. We are so excited. And this is where they're going to live. And they can go in and out of the refrigerator and it'll be cold enough and they can waddle across to the, the 
patio here and swim in the swimming pool. We, it's so exciting. Now, I don't know, maybe, but I don't know if anybody's a refrigerator engineer. I don't know if anybody's experience with raising penguins. But for the most part, you and I, we, we'd understand that this probably isn't going to work quite like you imagine. It might work for a few days. It might work for a couple of weeks. But long term, this refrigerator isn't really the best situation to serve as a habitat for penguins. I mean, just think about the mess. After a while, it's going to be full of penguin feathers and penguin poo and whatever else penguins sleep in, and, and it's going to be rank. Now, if you want to keep your food stuff cold, you know, your pork chops and your steaks and your, your salad dressings and your mustard and your mayonnaise, then you've got the best of the best because it was designed to keep food cold. You have every temperature variety you could imagine. But I, I'm sure that none of the engineers at Viking ever sat down and said, well, let's design something that a family of penguins can live in. You get that? It wasn't designed for that. You could, you could use that illustration across arenas. Heated seats in your car. Long day on the slopes of skiing and snowboarding. What do you say? I'm cold to the bone. And you get in the car and it's a long drive back to the condo. So you fire up the heated seats and oh, it just feels so good. But it wasn't designed to serve as a third oven to bake a peach cobbler. I mean, I don't know. Maybe the bottom would cook a little bit, but it's not going to cook all the way through in time for you to serve it to your guests who are due in an hour. And probably you're going to end up with peach cobbler down in the crevice of your seats and all over the little holes the heat come out. And pretty soon the heat won't be coming out anymore because it's crusty full of peach cobbler. And it's going to smell bad. Why? Because the seats weren't designed to cook a cobbler. You have some marbles you want to get rid of? I guess you could try putting them down your garbage disposal, but it's probably going to be bad for the blade. It's probably going to clog up your plumbing. Why? Because it wasn't designed for that. You with me? You with me? Okay. I'm a big design guy. I'm a big design guy. A number of years ago, it started to hit me that as I read through the Bible, it's full of design. I should have known that. The very first verse of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God created all that exists. God, before we learn about his love, his mercy, his salvation, the first thing that we learn about God is that he's a creator. And what we come to understand is that he always creates with purpose and intentionality because he is a designer. So what we find is that anything that truly matters in life, God created with a particular design. And this changed the way I read the Bible and it changed the way I lived my life. So here's just a list, a short list of the things that God has created 
with a design in mind, just like the universe. I mean, you just look at the orbits of the planets. You look at the axis of the earth in relationship to the sun. You, you look at the sun and the moon. You look at like the tides of the ocean. You look at the seasons of the year. You look at evaporation and precipitation. All of this amazing design by God. Uh, life, life in, in general, it, it was created with a design in mind. It's not just a random living out of events for 70, 80, 90 years. It has a design. It has a purpose. God was intentional about the way he created life to work. We look at the human body, absolutely amazing, miraculous display of God's design. Your eyes, your ears, your organs, your blood, the, the different systems of the human body that keep us alive. It's amazing. I don't know if this book's still in print anymore, but a number of years ago, I read a book um, entitled Fearfully and Wonderfully Made. It was written by a surgeon who had a deep faith in God, and he, he studies and, and writes about the human body and the miraculous um, demonstration of God's powerful design down to your little pinky toe and the importance that it plays in you and I getting around. It's amazing. Gender. God created according to a design, male and female, anatomically, physiologically, emotionally, mentally, all by design according to the two genders that God established for human life. In fact, all of human life exists and continues to exist on, on earth because of God's miraculous design of two genders, male and female. We talk about sexuality. God has a design for it. We can talk about money or wealth. God has a design for it. Marriage has a design. Family has a design. Work or labor has a design. Rest and relaxation has a design. Relationships have a design. We could go on and on. The point I, I want you to get from this discussion is that our soul, that intangible spiritual part of who we are and how we relate to the divine, our, our soul, guess what? It has a design. It was intended to work a certain way. And so here's what we learn if we look at the, the amazing design of God through the pages of the Bible. We learn two things. is that when you honor the design, you experience blessing. Those things work like God intended and you know peace and you know joy and you know love and you know fulfillment and satisfaction you know prosperity and that can be emotional prosperity or relational prosperity or personal prosperity or financial prosperity if you honor the design you'll know blessing but if you ignore the design if you try to re-engineer the design try to make up new designs what you need to understand is that god's word is very clear it results in consequences, pain, and brokenness, and distance. It's consequences. I meet people all the time, why does my marriage not work? Because they're not living their marriage in keeping with the design. Why is our family so fragmented? Because we're, not, we're ignoring the design. Does this make sense? So this is an important principle to... What it is I want to talk with you about today. 
because for the last several weeks now, we've been talking about how does a human being have a relationship with a divine being? How do we have a relationship with Jesus? Well, the place that that's going to happen, we've been talking about is the heart, not the organ inside of our chest, but that intangible relating part of us. And it's connected to our soul, the God part of us. And what we understand is that the soul has a design. It was intended to work a certain way. Here, here's a great way to think about it. Think of your soul like it was a garden. So let's imagine that you're interested in planting a garden. Maybe it's going to be to grow flowers. Maybe you're growing vegetables. And you admit, I don't really know how to do this or how to do it very well. So what do you do? You read some books. You watch bunch of YouTube videos from experts who plant beautiful rose gardens and who produce these wonderful harvests of, of vegetables. And maybe you talk to a friend or neighbor who's got years and years of experience and, and they'll tell you that there's a certain way that gardens thrive. They'll say something like, well, it all begins with good soil. You need to have really good dirt. And what they'll tell you is that Different plants thrive in different kinds of dirt. Some of it needs to be thick and moist, and some of it needs to be sandy. So you have to know about your soils in order for your seeds to thrive. And they're going to tell you, you, you you need plenty of sunlight. But different plants require different amounts and different intensities of sunlight. So some of them you have to plant up under the trees, and some of them you can plant out in the open. Because sunlight's important. They're, they're going to talk to you about watering. But all plants thrive on water, and you, again, different amounts of water, but they all need water. And they, they might talk to you about weeds and how weeds can come in and threaten the life of your plants and kind of suffocate the roots. And they might talk about like fertilizers and nutrients that you can add so that your flowers and your vegetables thrive. Get that? Okay, so listen. God designed your soul to work a certain way. And you have to cultivate the kind of environment that's conducive to a relationship with Jesus. And so what I want to do is I want to talk to you a little bit about two ways that are absolutely vital to cultivating the kind of place in our soul where a relationship with Jesus can thrive. Does that make sense? You see how we got there? Now, here's what I want you to understand. God has established several practices as essential to nurturing the health of your soul, the strength of your faith, and the quality of your life. Now, we could talk about maybe two dozen different practices, but you wouldn't stick around that long. So we're going to just talk about two of them. And I would say they're probably the two at the top of the list. The two are the most important. We'll come back and explore some of the other ones at another time. But God has established, God has endowed, God has anointed, ordained several practices that are essential to creating a garden where our, the health of our soul thrives and the strength of our faith grows and the quality of our life improves. Are you, are you interested? So here's the two practices we're going to look at. Today we're going to look at the study of Scripture. Next week we're going to look at the practice of prayer. So the Bible's full of fascinating verses. But in relationship to this topic, there's one verse that's just like, what? You interested? Yeah. Hebrews chapter 4 says this, For the 
Word of God. This collection that we call the scriptures, our Bible. The Word of God is alive. And active. This, the words of God, there's a, there's a living dynamic to them. They, 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 they do things. There isn't another book on the planet that is true in the sense that it's alive and active. Not like this. It's alive and active. In fact, it's sharper than any double-edged sword. It can penetrate down into the dividing of like the soul and the spirit. I mean, like that's such a, a, a small difference between how these two parts of us work. It divides joint from marrow. It judges things like the thoughts that nobody ever sees or hears. It judges attitudes of how we really feel about things. The attitudes of what? It's right there. The heart. That intangible part of us that we've been talking about the last two Sundays. This, this collection of God's word is alive and active. And folks, here's, I mean, I'm just being honest with you. I, I, can't, I can't explain the chemistry. I, I, don't, I don't know the physiology. I, I don't know the physics of how this book somehow connects with our soul in a language that our soul can hear and understand. And when our soul is exposed to this, it's alive and it's active and it does things. I can't explain it to you, but by faith, I trust that God says the words of God are powerful and they, they relate to your soul. Does that make sense? Remember us talking in the first week about sometimes this is difficult and Sometimes this is mysterious and sometimes this is different. Well, that's, how, how does that happen? I, I don't know, but the scriptures are saying they're alive and active and to the soul, the garden that will make themselves available to it, things happen there. Well, I'm curious. I'm curious of how that works. So, there's a hundred different ways that I could approach this. But the one I don't want to take is the one where I just end up making you feel like I'm guilting or shaming you into studying your Bible. That, that's not very noble. I don't want to do that. Uh, but maybe we could begin by let's challenge the language. Maybe change the language we use. It's a pretty popular thing to do nowadays, change language. That was a joke. Loosen up. What if we stop talking about studying the Bible? Because so many people have impressions of that word, the Bible. Even Christians who've been going to church all their life, and, and they'll say, if they're honest, they'll say, you know what? The Bible is kind of boring. It was written so long ago, and there's things I don't understand half of it, and I never know how it applies to my life. It's... I, Okay, let's, let's change that. Because at the end of the day, we're not really talking about studying the Bible. Like some kind of a hoop that we have to jump through. Some sort of checkbox we have to fulfill in order to be good Christians. What if we start talking about it as pursuing an understanding 
of the very words of God. That's what we want. That's what we need is an understanding of the words that God has spoken to mankind. Because that changes the deal. That changes the importance. That changes our perception. That changes the level of diligence that we might put into it. We're bored with Bible study, but what if our quest was to understand the very words that God has spoken? That's different. So there's this very obscure verse in the Bible. They're the words of Jesus. But we, we often just read right over them. We don't even pay attention. In fact, some people might think that they're, they're really just like an exaggeration. It's like Jesus is hyping his own stuff. Did you ever stop to think that Jesus never had to use exaggeration? All exaggeration is, is a lie packaged in a sales pitch. Jesus never had to hype up anything because he could always tell the truth and he could always deliver whatever he said. He didn't have to make it better than it really was. Does that make sense? So here's this verse. These are the words of Jesus and we gloss over them like they don't even matter. Look at this verse. Matthew chapter 5. Jesus truly I tell you, whenever he says that, you ought to sit at the edge of your seat and pay attention because he's about to download some really, really important information. Truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Do you understand what Jesus is saying? He's saying there isn't a single detail in the Bible, the words of God, that are going to go unfulfilled. It's interesting if you read this verse in some of the older translations like the King James Version. We read this. Verily I say unto you. Sounds very King James, doesn't it? Verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. You're like, what? What does that even mean? What, what, in, what in the world's a jot or a tittle? You interested? I came prepared to tell you what a jot and tittle is. Here's three Hebrew letters or characters. This here is the jot. It's the letter yod. It's where we get the Y sound. It's literally just that. In fact, it's about the size of a comma. It's just a little jot. Want to know what a tittle is? Inquiring minds want to know. Okay, I got two other Hebrew characters. This is the letter resh, and this is the letter dalit, or Dalit, depending on what side of town you're from. Resh, that's the R sound. Dalit, it's the D sound. You want to know what the tittle is? The tittle is this little part right here. You see these look identical, except for that little tiny extension right there. That's the tittle. And it separates the difference between rash and dash. It changes the whole meaning. And Jesus is saying 
not one little stroke of a pen, not the smallest little extension on a letter is going to go unfulfilled with what God has spoken. Another passage, another translation of that same verse. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. You know what that means? That not the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its design has been fulfilled. Elsewhere in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. He's starting to get the sense of how important the words of God are. Jesus said it this, all people, they're, they're like grass. All their glory is like the flowers of the field, and the grass eventually withers, and the flower eventually falls, but... The word of the Lord endures forever. So if that's true, that not, not one of the smallest details of the Bible are going to go unfulfilled, then, then there's a couple of things that we can learn. You ready? First is this. Every single event in the Bible will be completed. Every single one of them. There's people who read the Bible and they go, you know, I've read some of the things in the Old Testament, some of the things Jesus said in the gospel, and those things never happened yet. Some of the events of the scripture have been interrupted. In fact, you and I sit here today very gratefully for the fact that God interrupted what he was doing in the life of the nation of Israel so that he could bring the message of the gospel, the story of grace to you and to me, Gentiles. We're here today because God interrupted what he was doing. But when he's finished doing what he wants to do with us, he's going to pick up and continue what he started with the nation of Israel. Every event will be complete. Second thing, every single prophecy will be fulfilled. Every single one of them. Even all that weird stuff you read about in the book of Revelation or the likes of Daniel or Isaiah or Jeremiah, every single one of them will be fulfilled. Every single promise that God's made, and he's made hundreds of them, every one of them will be realized. We'll see them come true. Every single purpose for which God designed life will be achieved. Every single purpose that God attempted to accomplish through the cross and the resurrection, it will be achieved. Every single reward will be bestowed. Did you get that? When Jesus talks about standing before God someday and hearing the words, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord, that, that is a reward that will be bestowed. You listening? You, you need to know that God's not socially or politically correct, so it's not participation trophies for everybody. God will bestow that reward on those of us who have been good at being faithful as stewards of what he's entrusted to our care. Oh, I don't know, like your marriage and your family and your body and your spiritual gifts and the gospel, all these things that God's entrusted to your care. Okay, ready? One more. 
If every single reward will be bestowed, then every single judgment will be delivered. Every single judgment that God speaks of in the scriptures, it will be delivered. As unpopular as it is, as uncomfortable as it sounds, every judgment. People today are like, oh, man, God sounds so mean and so inflexible and so inconsiderate of all the different varieties of how people want to live their life. And so, surely, surely, he, he'll not hold the line. God says, wait a second. Every single word that I've spoken will be fulfilled. God, God's not going to like backpedal and go, you know what? I, I was young then. <laughs> I, was, I was full of piss and vinegar and I just said all kinds of stuff. And I, you know what? I've softened through the years. I've sort of, you know, decided, oh, hey, progress. Things changed over the centuries. And so, you know what? I'm okay with that. I wasn't at one time, but I, no, no, no. Every single word will be fulfilled. So I, I, I could back the truck up and unload all these reasons why you should study the words of God. I, I, I'm just going to offer you a couple to consider. And the first four or so we're going to go through pretty quickly because I want to save some time for the last one, which I think is incredibly pertinent to the day and age in which we're living and the importance of God's word to now, the culture and society that influences our life. So the first reason I would say that you, you should study God's word to feed your soul. Again, I can't explain the chemistry of how it works but there's something about the words of God as contained in the revelation of scripture that feed our soul. That provide the nutrition it needs in order to thrive. I, I hear people all the time, oh, you know, my Christian life, it's not working. It doesn't, doesn't really deliver like I thought. And, and nine times out of ten, it's because their soul is starving. It's not being fed. And I'll tell you that 35, 40 minutes on a Sunday isn't enough. You don't eat once a week. Your soul needs to be fed the word of God. Look at the language of the scriptures. Jesus answered, it's written, man shall not live on bread alone. And yet millions of people do. Many Christians wouldn't think of missing a meal. But it's been weeks, months, maybe years since they've really studied in search of God's word in the scriptures. But... They'll live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's how a soul survives. Peter says it this way, as newborn babies, as infants, we should desire the sincere milk of the word because it feeds us so that you may grow by it. Elsewhere in the book of Hebrews, the scriptures are referred to as the meat that as we grow in our faith, we desire more and better nutrition. And we go and search for the deep things of the scriptures. Why? Because it feeds our soul. Make sense? I didn't say we'd spend a lot of time on each of these. All right? Second one, you, you should study God's word to strengthen your faith. Our faith is, is sort of like a muscle. And the more we 
exercise it, it builds endurance and a capacity to stick with things longer than giving up and doubting and shying away. Our faith needs to be strengthened. And one of the vital exercises that strengthens faith is an exposure to the truth of God as recorded in the scriptures. Look at this. Faith comes from hearing the message. And the message is heard how? Through the word that we have about Christ. If we want a stronger faith, Scripture is one of the vital exercises that helps that faith to grow. We look at different characters throughout the Bible and we see people attempting to live by faith. And some of them do really well and some of them make poor choices and mess things up, but they learn or they have opportunity to learn and we have an opportunity to learn from them about how our faith should look in those situations that are trying. Third reason, you should study God's word to live a wise life. And I'll just tell you, a wise life is the best way to live. But don't take my word for it. Take the book of Proverbs and the word that it provides is that there's no better way to live than a wise life. And Proverbs would tell you, wise begins with a deep respect for God and the things that he has said. I encourage you this week sometime, just, just read Proverbs chapters 1 through 5. It talks about the, the value of wisdom. We read in Proverbs chapter 3, my son, my daughter, don't forget my teaching, wisdom says, but keep my commands in your heart for they will prolong your life many years and bring you peace and prosperity. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then, then you will find favor and a good name in the sight of God and in the sight of other people. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge or submit to him and he will make your paths straight. Another reason that we should study God's word to resist temptation. And we live in a world that offers us many a temptation. Well, the way that we do it, we, we run defense against those things that are alluring in our life is that our faith is strong and our mind is filled with the knowledge of God's word and how it applies to what it is that we're facing. I mean, think about Jesus. What is it? John chapter 4. The temptation of Jesus and Satan squares off with Jesus and invites him to several different tempting scenarios. And how does Jesus defend against each one of them? He defends by quoting the scriptures as the truth upon which he makes his choices. Psalm says this, how can a young person, an old person, a woman, a man, how can they stay on the path of purity? Well, by living according to your word. I seek you with my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I've, I've hidden your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. Does this make sense? All right, there's one more. This one's really important. And I want to be really careful. Everything from the tone of my voice to the posture of my body because I, I don't want to communicate the wrong thing. But this is serious business. 
And it's not comfortable. But it's truth. You should study God's word to avoid the deception of self. Our heart and the depravity that resides there has has the ability to deceive us from the truth. Look at this fascinating verse in the book of Psalms. God's writing to the nation of Israel. But my people, they would not listen to me. I, I offered them my wisdom. I offered them my commands and instructions. But they would not listen to me. Israel would not submit to me. They were stubborn in their spirit that they wouldn't listen to what I had to say. So, listen to this. I gave them over. You know what that means? That means God eventually just stepped back and said, okay, you're on your own. Do it your way. I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own devices, or as many translations say, I, to follow their own counsel. It's like God just stepped back and said, okay, you don't want to listen to me? Let's listen to yourselves. Let's listen to what everybody else has to say. You say, but Paul, come on, that's Old Testament. That's the nation of Israel. That doesn't apply to us. Okay, come with me to the book of Proverbs. Proverbs is about wisdom. And wisdom doesn't know time or era. Wisdom is for all time. How long will you who are simple love your simple ways? How long will you mockers delight in mockery and fools hate knowledge? Repent at my rebuke. Then I will pour out my thoughts to you. I will make known to you my teaching. But since you refuse to listen when I call. And no one pays attention when I stretch out my hand. This is wisdom making its appeal. Since you disregard all my advice. And you do not accept my rebuke. I in turn will laugh. At your disaster. Wisdom is saying, you don't, you don't want to hear me? You think that's all old stuff? That's just religious fable? Because the Bible is so ridiculous. You just need to know that wisdom always has the last laugh. Ignore the advice of God. And I will laugh when your disaster strikes you. I will mock when calamity overtakes you. When calamity overtakes you like a storm. When disaster sweeps over you like a whirlwind. When distress and trouble overwhelm you. Then... Then they'll call out to me, but I will not answer. They will look for me, but I'll, they'll not find me since they hated knowledge and they did not choose the fear of the Lord. Since they would not accept my advice and they spurned my rebuke, rebuke then they will eat the fruit of their ways. Have it your way. And they'll be filled with the fruit of their schemes. That's hard to hear. You say, yeah, but again, that's Old Testament. Okay, okay, I'm just trying. So let's come to the New Testament, which is to us. Christians living in this era of history. One of the hardest hitting passages in all the Bible. And this is, this is the day that I don't want to be the preacher because it's very unpopular as I found out in the last service. This is the truth of God's word. I have a responsibility. 
The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and the wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. Creation alone is a testimony to the power and the existence of God. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and his divine nature, they've been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But then their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. And although they claimed to be so smart, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. They started worshiping things they could see. Therefore, God gave them over. This is the first of three times it will appear in this passage. God gave them over in the sinful desires of their heart to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Because of this, God gave them over. Said, okay, have it your way. Do what you want. To shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way the men abandoned natural relationships with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. And men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they would do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and malice. They're gossip, slanders, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways. Pay attention to this. This is our society and technicolor. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. And although they know God's righteous decrees that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these things, but they approve of those who practice them. That's the danger of self-deception. And we are living in a generation where passages like this are unfolding right before our very eyes. And we are not immune to that kind of self-deception. So let me ask you, who are you listening to? Who, who do you follow? Uh, who do you read first? Who, who do you read the most? Who do you read with great curiosity and fanfare because you want to know what they think about all the social issues of our day? And what's really scary, and I see this all through the church, is many Christians, we'd rather listen to athletes and celebrities 
and politicians and scholars and pundits and elites and the very wealthy because we want to know what they have to say about these social and cultural situations that we're facing as Christians. And we'd rather hear what they have to say than what God has to say. We'd rather listen to somebody who's really good at shooting a basketball or somebody that has a long list of successful Hollywood movies or the wealthiest person in the world. What, what, they must know everything. And yet, comparatively, we spend very little time wanting to know what does God say? Does that make sense? One of the most foolish philosophies that I'm seeing penetrate the church and how it's approaching the world is, I, I hear politicians use it. I, I hear celebrities use it. I, I hear people who have no space for God in their life use it. And they say, well, Jesus loves. Jesus is love. Jesus loves everybody. True. Jesus is love. Jesus loves everybody. But never once in all of his love has he ever approved or condoned that which is contrary to the design and the purposes as revealed in the pages of scripture. He does love everybody but the offer of his grace and forgiveness always follows, always follows the repentance and the confession of the sinner's heart to admit their need for the Savior and what he has to offer. We must not be sloppy with a God in the person of Jesus who was the embodiment of grace and truth. So what do you say, Sybil? What do you say, like here and now? If we want a relationship with Jesus, we're going to cultivate a, a garden in our soul. And we're going to commit, not to just studying our Bible. But desperately thirsting to understand the truth of the words of God in our life. May it begin here. May it begin with us for the generation that we're called to serve. Something to think about. I ask you to stand together. Our Father in heaven, write it on the tablets of our hearts that not a single detail, no matter how small, how seemingly inconsequential, not a single detail of the words that you have spoken will go unfulfilled. May you find here at this church a growing community of people who thirst to diligently understand the truth of your words and their application to our life. I pray and ask in the name of Christ, the Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. We'll see you next Sunday.